Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for August 2018, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Memphis Rent Party, the blues, rock, and soul in music's hometown is the latest book by Robert Gordon. Now, the fabled city of Memphis has been essential to American music, home of the blues, the birthplace of rock and roll, a soul music capital as well. Now, we know the greatest hits, but celebrated author Robert Gordon takes us to the people and places far less known. A Memphis native, he whiles away time in a crumbling duplex with blues legend Furry Lewis. He stays up late with barrel house piano player Mose Vinson and sips homemade whiskey at Junior Kimbrough's churning house parties. A passionate listener, Gordon hears modern times deep in the grooves of old records by Lead Belly and Robert Johnson. The connected profiles and stories in Memphis Rent Party convey more than a region like mint seeping into bourbon. Robert gets into the wider world. He beholds the beauty of mistakes with producer Jim Dickinson, who's worked with the Rolling Stones and the Replacements. He charts the stars with Alex Chilton of Box Tops and Big Star fame and mulls the tragedy of Jeff Buckley's fatal swim in Memphis. I began my interview with Robert Gordon by asking him why he wrote this book about some of the lesser-known talents in his hometown of Memphis. You know, this was an opportunity to kind of reflect on the uh, people I've met over the years and, and to look back at some of the things I've written and also to ask myself questions about about how it's all worked, you know, what's been fair and unfair and what's been a treat for me. And I don't know, I just got really kind of lost in my own <laughs> journey of meeting Furry Lewis and Jim Dickinson and every, everybody, you know, who, who came after. Let's talk about a, a few of, of the names, few of the, the cast of characters, people who are probably most familiar to the, the casual music listener. Why don't we start there and we'll, we'll go a, a little little bit deeper. Um, yeah, starting with people like Jim Dickinson, who may not, not everybody may not know his name, but certainly know the, the, the people that Jim worked with. T- tell us about Jim and what kind of a character this guy was like. Well, people may not know Jim Dickinson by name, but they've heard his they've heard his uh musicianship he's he's probably best known for maybe producing big star third and producing some of Ry Cooter's best records include and and played on the Paris Texas soundtrack and played piano with the Rolling Stones um when they cut in uh Muscle Shoals uh, Wild Horses but um Jim is the kind of inheritor of the Sam Phillips mantle in Memphis. Jim um, didn't discover an Elvis Presley like Sam Phillips did at Sun Records, but Jim uh, was looking for something different, which was Sam's motto, give me something different. And, and Jim kept Memphis, kept the edge in Memphis and really handed it down to several generations including me, you know, he, he kept us uh, insisting on, you know, appreciating sounds like uh, Alex Chilton's Like Flies on Sherbert and things that aren't necessarily commercial but are different and, and thus have an appeal. 
And let's back up and talk about Sam Phillips. And, and it's fascinating, your, your focus on this uh, uh, rather surreal appearance that Sam Phillips <laughs> made on David Letterman's show. I, did, I didn't see this when it, when it originally unfolded. It was uh, <laughs> a, little, a little bit unusual, shall we say. I love it. You know, I found out about it when VHS tapes were handed around as like, you know, a secret society. Oh, you got to see this. And Sam Phillips's appearance on David Letterman just knocked me out. And um, really in dialogue with my wife afterwards, uh, you know, we were talking about Sam's sense of production, you know, how, how whacked out Sam was on national TV, but how, you know, really what he'd done was he'd produced David Letterman. He'd made David Letterman be a host in a different from any way he'd ever been a host before. And Sam took charge. It was just beautiful to, to see. And I kind of, and I wrote this kind of play-by-play of the tussle because David is not willingly, you know, David didn't sign up to come in and record a a single with Sam. You know, David thought he was in charge, (laughs) but but Sam really shows the masteries of, of of a record producer at his best. When uh, my wife and I were in, in Sun and the, our very sweet tour guide pointed at the X and said that's where Elvis likes, liked to sing in the studio, my, I'm usually the, the one who's blubbering all the time whenever I'm around major historical sites of any kind, especially music ones. And I just peeked over at my wife and she's just sobbing. She's sobbing. Oh, man. And it was just yeah. one of those places where... Uh, you, you know, I don't throw that word around too much, sacred, but it, it is. It's, it's, it, what's amazing about it is it's so small and intimate. It tells you, you know, a lot. Rock and roll has become this arena-sized, you know, uh, commodity. But when it began, it was in a teeny tiny room, and you can stand in that spot, and you can, you can, you know, almost touch where Sam would have been. And so when you realize how small it all was and both the innocence it began with and the aggressive sense of seeking the creative, you know, yeah, it brings all those emotions forward. It does. And, and, and being in Sun is so reminiscent of, of the Motown studio, Robert. That again, it's, it's, it's a modest house on West Grand yeah. Boulevard. And, and, you know, the, the space, you look in that space, it's like, this is tiny. How do they get, how do they do this? How do they film? How the sounds get so big? Right. It's how did great, they, you know? And just those yeah. little things at the, at the control board in Motown, our, our guide there is, will point out, see those worn spots? on the floor that's that's where the the producer that's where Barry Gordy and and the other musicians they'd stand at the control room and stamp their feet to the music and it wore out a section of the floor and it's just one of those oh that's so cool that they they kept that they didn't replace that with new flooring you want that that grit that that soul that you know oh that energy in these little rooms it's it's so incredible talk, talk about Jeff Buckley your your piece on uh, him and the in the book is so poignant and man i remember for many of us who were old enough when we got the news about him went again like his dad yeah. to die so right. young no 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 how what 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 and it, it seems so bathed in mystery he seemed 
like a, a decent guy. He wasn't on drugs or alcohol. Right. Why would you go right. wading with your boots on into the Mississippi River? I don't. I don't. <laughs> did he have a death well, wish? You know, what happened? I, I I can't tell you exactly why. Of course, um, Jeff went into the river fully clothed. But uh, you know, uh, my encounters with him began when I the first time I met him. He was visiting Memphis at a place called Easily Recording, where uh, they cut a lot of good stuff. And um, I was showing off some uh, Al Green and High Rhythm photos I had just picked up in South Memphis, and this studio is on the south side of town, and I needed to share. I was so excited with these photos I'd found, I needed to share. And Jeff and I didn't meet. We didn't exchange names, but we met. And he was this guy... I thought he was walking around this studio like Gumby, you know, it was like he had this wire running through him and he had these kind of jerky, excited movements. And in a way, you know, when I looked back on that later and trying to make sense of everything, I, I, I interpreted it as this um, roiling impulsion in Jeff, that he was a really impulsive guy. And, 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 and that's really how he ended up here. Later, I met him at, when I met him you know, by name, he was already down here recording. I was friends with Easily Recording, and I would often stop by. And uh, he was going, oh, man, I love it here. And I think what he loved was that he could walk around and not be, no one recognized him, you know. And it's, it's a town where you can do that. And, and he said, I want to move here. And I mentioned, oh, and he had read my books. My first book, it came from Memphis, had made an impression on him. So uh, he, um, I said, oh, there's a house for rent on my block. And it turned out, you know, impulsively, I think, he wound up renting it. And, and I think that I remember going to him. So every now and then I'd hang out. I gave him a lot of room. I wasn't bugging him or anything, but we'd hang out. He'd come down the street for dinner sometimes. My wife and I would feed him. Um, he was a great mimic. Man, I'm sorry to go on here about him, but you're just making me think of so many things. He turned me on to this movie, this Peter Sellers movie called The Party, um, where Peter Sellers is, among other things, a great mimic. And I really think... Jeff Buckley. He, we were talking about doing a music video modeled on the the the, the party, and <laughs> Jeff wanted to be that character. He wanted to be this mimic, and he wanted to wear those clothes, and he wanted to do slapstick acts. Um, I know he was a mimic because he would come down and pick up our six-month-old daughter and exchange sounds with her. Just these sounds would go back and forth between them, and it was really cool. And so I think when he went in the water that night on the eve before his recording session, he was just so excited about the recording, about the opportunities that were coming up that he just impulsively went in. And I think a wave went over and caught him by surprise. And, you know, the shoes took him down and something like that happened. And it was a real nightmare on, in, you know, around the world. But boy, we felt it on Rembert Street real badly. I bet. I bet. Take us into some of the uh, musicians from Memphis uh, that many of us may not be so familiar with, starting with this mm -hmm. guy, Jerry McGill, someone you didn't McGill. want to, <laughs> yeah, someone you don't, didn't want to know where you lived. I want to hear all more about Jerry McGill, please. So 
McGill, that's great that you're asking about McGill, the, the legendary outlaw of, of the Sun Records era. McGill made one recording in his lifetime, a single on Sun, that Sam Phillips, uh, you know, produced. And um, when he got on the stage in the spotlight, he started to meet the, this was in, would have been in the late 1950s, he started to meet the criminals and boosters who hung around in the shadows of the nightclubs, and he realized, oh, I'm much more comfortable in the shadows, and he became a career criminal. Uh, I wound up making a documentary about him called Very Extremely Dangerous that you can get in a beautiful little package with a CD included that's great and features Jim Dickinson and Mud Boy and just Alex Chilton, some of the great Midtown Memphis artists. Um, and so McGill came into my life through Jim Dickinson, really. Uh, it, you know, I run, I run this Q&A, my first interview with Dickinson, which kind of uh, laid the parameters of all my, of my next 30 years of research. And, and, and McGill was the star of William Eggleston's uh, portable uh, video called uh, Stranded in Canton. Eggleston was shooting portable video when it first came out around Memphis in, in the mid-1970s. And McGill almost killed someone on videotape, and it's very frightening. And I was helping Eggleston with this movie and uh, wanted to find McGill to say, you know, th this is where he is now. And he was still friends with Roland James, at, who ran the Sam Phillips Recording Service. And Roland said, I get collect calls from him from prison in Florida. And I couldn't find him in the Florida prison system. I put about two full days effort into it. And, and when McGill was released from Florida prison and we wound up making contact with him through the Internet, I found out the reason I couldn't meet him, I couldn't find him, was he served his third prison term under an alias oh. in the year in the 2000s you know when when computers <laughs> should have been able to catch that yeah. which just tells you what kind of uh smarts he had and i made a mistake when he contacted me because he sent me short stories first that he'd written and they were great he'd read my book he found out about me read my book um and when he called me i said your stories are great he uh you know he said oh i'll send you more give me your address and in that moment, I kind of, my world stopped. I thought, wow, I used to keep a P.O. box for just this occasion in case I didn't want someone to have my home address. But McGill's in the 70s now. He's got to have calmed down. It's bound to be okay. <laughs> and I gave him my address. And, man, I regretted it for about four more years, five more years until he died. Whew! Wow. <laughs> he was... He was, you know, this movie documents what we discovered about him, but he was a wild man. We kind of hung with him for 10 weeks until we couldn't hang on any longer. It's like a ride on the trigger finger of a marauding criminal. Oh, goodness, goodness. <laughs> wow. T tell us more about your career. There, it's unusual to, to, to talk to an author who has also such an accomplished career, a complete parallel career, really, as a filmmaker. Do you consider yeah. yourself more a filmmaker than an author, an e equal author and filmmaker? You're, you're, you're so avidly interested in both uh, writing books and making movies, Robert. 
Well, thank yes, great. I um, I don't consider myself more one than the other. You know, I think it's really about the story and and how the story wants to be told, or and sometimes how you want to tell the story. Like a couple of them, I've told you know stacks records and the history of muddy waters i've done both as a film and as a book and in opposite order in stacks we did the film first and then the book and in muddy i did the book first and then the film but you just it's it's you know you build them from different elements and um my whole thing is to sort of find the core of a story and get to that i i also feel like you know when you're writing something and you feel like oh this this is important history that has to be in the story. It's so boring. Well, I, you know, I tend to take that stuff out and find another way to get, to tell you that 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 those those the salient points you need to know for the narrative to hold together. I like a good narrative, you know. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a lot. A lot of your your profiles in your new book also bring up the whole "be careful what you wish for" when it comes yeah. to becoming yeah. trying to make a living, trying to become famous as a musician. And man, a lot of the time, it is this deal. It's this deal with the devil, and it doesn't. It, uh, I, I, there's so many. Bands. I've been a DJ here in the Detroit Ann Arbor area for 35 some years, and just the rise and fall, and of so many musicians and people who deserved it so much and never got it, and then so many people who made it yeah. who who don't, and and yeah. the, the struggles. Uh, we've we've had a couple of great bands out of Ann Arbor. Oh, they've got signed to. Uh, oh, I won't reveal, but you know, one of the major labels oh you're going to be doing great the rest of your life no it was the worst thing they've ever could have done they probably should have stayed indie and oh it's just such a gruelingly difficult it's just painful especially when you become friends i'm sure this happens to you all the time when you go oh my god this guy is suffering he's living in poverty and he's so much better than anything on the billboard top 200 right now it can just it can be a heartbreaking it really can well, and there's other aspects to it too. You know, you know, like meeting your your artistic heroes and finding out, wow, they're really not such a nice person. <laughs> you know, they're not the person I thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's really, you know, that's difficult. And then also just making a living at it, you know, as a writer on the on the sidelines. You know, it's uh, there's the lack of stability. Um, makes me you know have ulcers but at the same time the reward is just incredible to be able to because sometimes you have these experiences i don't know i had a couple experiences with charlie feathers the rockabilly singer james carr the soul singer um that i wouldn't trade for the world even the jeff buckley stuff man as sad as it is as sad as it makes me to reflect upon those experiences they're mine you know i had them just because this was what i got to do for a living and and so um i embrace you know i have to embrace the travails because uh they're i think uh whether they're a necessary part of the joys or not they're certainly they certainly in this world are part of the joys you know you can't i don't seem to be able you don't you don't 
get one without the other. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I, I, I will use maybe this, this seems silly, but I'll I'll use an analogy when I talk to musicians. I, I, I'm a, a big fan actually of um, IndyCar and auto racing and drag racing. Part of it is just mm-hmm. I could never do that. That's insane. That's just not a logical thing to do. And I feel like that about musicians. So it's like, why are you trying to make your living? The world mostly doesn't care. They're so stupid in America. I don't know. I shouldn't say this, but it seems like in America, we just don't we don't treasure our art. We don't understand the beauty of it. And I, I know how difficult it is to try and make a living at music. You're crazy for yeah. for doing that, but you're so brave. I could never do that. I mean, yeah. I tried. I played drums back in that day and in, in a couple bands and learned very quickly. Now I'm going to be a radio DJ. I think maybe I can make an easier living that way, playing other people's music. You know, I, I guess that's the, the, the little ch- the chicken way out. But uh, that, that's the well, way it works. Yeah. You know, I think we all, I don't know, I, um, we all just kind of find our way to add our bit, yeah. you know, and, and to get to be involved. Um, and and I know that, like, I remember telling my, you know, a longtime friend of mine uh, that I, I still had law school as an option. And he turns to me and he goes, dude, you're too old to start <laughs> a, a law career at this point. I was like... Oh my God, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm out on a limb. Yes. You know, and and the thing is, of course, we're always out on a limb, almost no matter what we're doing, even in the comfort of a of a corporate job. There's there's risk, you know, in this modern age that there wasn't in the. 60s and 70s when you might stay with the company forever so oh sure i don't know we're all on some kind of limb you know and and uh and we we have to, we we tell ourselves the things we have to tell ourselves in order to uh survive oh it's so true let me ask you about two more uh, of the artists yeah. who you you profile in your book and you, and you just mentioned uh one of them james carr and this is really one of the most powerful chapters in your book tell, tell us about james carr not everyone may be familiar with this in- right. incredible but troubled artist he was uh He's probably best known, he's a soul singer yeah. uh, from the 60s and 70s, probably best known for making the original recording of a song called Dark End of the Street. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and the song is beautiful, and it's a, uh, it's a sneaking around song. Dan Penn and Chips Moman wrote it, um, you know, trying to, trying to top the classic uh, song Steal Away but James Carr so James Carr had a career some other songs another notable title he had was You've Got My Mind Messed Up and um, James had a uh, messed up mind he had uh, some kind of mental illness and uh, I don't know um, when and if it was ever formally diagnosed and how he was treated because he didn't make much money at what he was doing and I'm sure he never got proper health care. He died young of lung cancer uh, in his 50s. Um, in the 1990s, he was making something, something of a comeback under having re- reunited with the original producer and record company that he began with. And so... Again, easily recording, man. Great place in town, still operating. Uh, they were, they had an old 16-track machine that um, Goldwax wanted to use, and I got wind of the sessions and hung out and did a piece with James that it was that really led me to question 
um, you know, the 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 exploitation that is part of the music industry that you know a, a, a singer has talent and and hires a, a company to exploit it that's a really good thing um, but at the same time it comes with risks of I don't know abusive exploitation and and the James Carr gold wax relationship set those off for me and then I had I'm interviewing James, and he's singing, man, in a diner. He starts singing Dark End of the Street, and it blew me away, and I thought, like, the cars were going to stop on the street, and all that happened was he finished the song, and our lunch clattered on to the table, and we're pulling out in the parking lot afterwards, and I show him this photo of himself on an album cover, and he somehow it opened the door to James talking about his mental illness. And he began by asking me, do you think a person can switch bodies with you? And I was so surprised, you know, I didn't know we, that, that he was going to talk like this. And I said, the only thing you can say, because I didn't want to stop him from talking. I said, you know, I've thought about it. And then, and, and so... I include in the book, I, I, I never would have published it in his lifetime, and I, and I waited until he was dead to publish it, this, this Q&A transcript of James talking about what I consider his interpretation of his mental illness, and it's a really harrowing read. Mm, it is. Let's close out with another person that we just associate a lot with Memphis, and, and that's Alex Chilton, who, man, how, mm-hmm. what a way to start off a career. What, 16, 17, <laughs> with this smash hit single, the, the, the letter by the box tops? Wow. And then, how do you, and then how do you match that, you know, when you have this gigantic hit single when you're a teenager? You know, what, what right. happens next? And uh, he, he somehow survived, but it sure wasn't easy, was it? Well, it's funny because, like you said, he, you know, he, he sort of he begins with a number one worldwide hit, his first time in a recording studio, and over the next, I don't know, forty years of his career, he sort of inverts everything. He goes from this deep-voiced teenager to a higher-voiced adult, um, and he goes from uh, massive acceptance to cult uh following you know and and he does it because he's charged he's charting his own path he's sort of he having survived the exploitation um that of his youth he takes his career in his own hands and sort of works a, a creates a brazen artistic path um but perhaps a much less commercially successful one. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for August 2018. Our interview was with Robert Gordon about his latest book, Memphis Rent Party, The Blues, Rock, and Soul in Music's Hometown. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. All the days ago, I'm a going home.